walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus Christ has come as our light and as our life. Come, let us adore him. Would you stand and sing with us?
Good morning, friends, and happy Advent 4 and Merry Christmas Eve. That's right, we get two for the price of one today, December 24th. <laughs> this morning is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and as we continue to prepare to celebrate Christ's birth and Christmas Day tomorrow, um, we are also leaning into the fact that it's Christmas Eve today, right? Excited. So hopefully you have some fun plans coming ahead. But even as we continue to anticipate those, um, we have been engaging throughout this journey of Advent in the O Antiphons, which are these chants that the church has used to call upon the name of Jesus. And we've been engaging in a chant ourselves. And so we're going to do that this morning. We've been practicing for a few weeks. Um, if you haven't been with us, just kind of settle in with all the rest of us. We'll start with an excited whisper and grow to a shout by the, the fourth. So shout. We can shout. It's Advent 4. <laughs> but we will pray first, and Pastor Ross will lead us in those uh, moments Very good. <laughs> together with the candle lighting liturgy. You bet. People of God, Christ has come and Christ will come again. We light the fourth candle of Advent in love as we long for the everlasting embrace of Christ's second coming. Let's pray together with the words on the screen. O Emmanuel, child of promise and sign of hope, come come to to us, us. abide abide with us. You come from a distance beyond our reach, yet you are closer to us than we are to ourselves. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Stay with us in our expectation that we may give birth to what is just, good, beautiful, and true. Come to us, O Emmanuel, and stay with us in love. O root root of Jesse, Jesse, reach reach deep deep down and stir up hope. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. O radiant dawn, dispel earth's darkness with sunrise of shalom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. O King of nations, unite your world in joy of your reign. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. O Emmanuel, child of promise, stay with us in love. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. O come, thou King of David, come and open.
by God's glorious presence, perhaps while overlooking Lake Superior, or while meditating in a glorious Gothic cathedral halfway around the world, or perhaps at the summit of a mountain in one of our stunning national parks. Wherever it may have been, John's vision of the renewed heaven and earth surely surpasses them all. In Revelation 21, John tells us that there, God will make his dwelling place amongst mere mortals, and he will dwell with his people and they with him. In the Greek, God makes a skene or a tabernacle, a tent or a hut amongst human beings, and he skenoses or tabernacles with them. Said in Hallmark Channel ease, God makes a home among us and he chooses to nest with us. John's vision describes the glorious age to come one in which, in which mere muggles are welcomed into everlasting fellowship with God and God's people. John borrows this image from, of God tabernacling among his people from the Old Testament traditions. There in the tabernacle, we encounter the 1.0 version of God's glorious presence with humanity. God covenants to make his dwelling amongst his people, it says in Leviticus 26. My soul will not abhor you, God says to us. God promises us. And when the people make a sanctuary, God promises to dwell with them there, it says in Exodus 25. And sure enough, in Exodus 26, one chapter later, when Moses finishes building the tabernacle, the Lord tabernacled, took up residence among his people there. And a little while later, when Solomon finished building the temple, the ultimate tabernacle, the glory of the Lord tabernacled, took up residence there too. God tabernacles with the people in the tabernacle. So much so that when the prophet Ezekiel envisions a new Jerusalem, he includes the blueprint for a temple in which God's presence would dwell with his people forever. Naturally then, when John's rather detailed vision of the new Jerusalem comes to our, to our, our ears in Revelation 21, it includes a glorious Gothic cathedral fit with a pipe organ and chubby baby fixtures all throughout. And yet, John says, there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. The original hearers would have fallen off their chairs hearing this, which would have been hard to do because they were recliners. Maybe they would have rolled off their chairs. <laughs> Why is there no temple? Because the very presence of the Lord itself, John says, is 
the temple. It's almost like John's vision of the glorious age to come is not just a calling forth of our imaginations to the point in history when God dwells amongst his people, but also a call back to the beginning of creation. In the beginning, there was no tabernacle, no temple, no sanctuary, no beautiful Gothic cathedral with pipe organs and chubby baby fixtures because all of creation was God's tabernacle. Every square inch, the place where his glorious presence dwelt with us. And yet there's something striking that we should notice because while the Old Testament repeatedly describes the presence of God as so thick, so heavy, so weighty that it stops human beings in their tracks and even more so sometimes even causes them to cower in fear for terror of death. In the beginning, original humanity lived and worked and ate and played flag football in the very presence of God. In the beginning, the glory of God was more like a weighted blanket for our souls. It brought comfort and peace and joy rather than terror or fear of death. God's glorious presence enlivened and animated and energized us rather than incapacitated us. It's almost like our souls were made for joyful communion with the everlasting God, quite literally fit for the spiritual altitude of such an encounter with him. But something broke it. Human sin and brokenness and shame quite literally drove us out from the glorious presence of God, plunging us into the depths of the low, flat, monotonous land below spiritual sea level. The ancients called this the exile. Historically, exile refers to the deportation of the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah by Babylon. To be exiled was to be taken out, carried off from your land and your home, and your temple, and your culture, and your language, and your customs. But exile is also a way of describing a spiritual reality. Spiritually, exile is to no longer feel at home in God's glorious presence. According to data trends, exile is increasingly now what it feels like to be human. Only we moderns call it loneliness which sometimes feels like being alone, even in a room full of people that we know. I think our current plight of loneliness helps us to understand what spiritual exile feels like. It's like an existential loneliness in which we flee further and further away from God's glorious presence. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we might flee um, from God's glorious presence or even why we might no longer feel at home in God's glorious presence. Perhaps sin patterns that steal, slowly steal our allegiance and our energy and our attention. Perhaps the sins of the church or church leaders who were supposed to be a sanctuary to us. Perhaps boredom and busyness and distraction that impede our encounter with God. Perhaps the shame that tells us that we won't ever be welcomed back into God's glorious presence. It's not surprising that as faith diminishes and even church membership decreases, loneliness increases because our souls hunger, they thirst, they pant, they cry out for fellowship, everlasting fellowship with the God who has always dared, even in the face of sin, death, and darkness, always dared to call us friends. And he did so in the gentlest of ways, concealing his glory lest we shrink back from him in fear and terror like an infant cooing in his mother's arms amidst the darkest and most oppressive of nights, so kind that even dirty, smelly shepherds could hold him and sing to him, 
so gentle and mild that even sinners and pagans could bow the knee in worship of him. So meek that even enemies and traitors and even runaway rebellious people like us could become his very best friends. In the midst of the tears and the pain and the struggle and the chaos of our lives, our God dared to move into a pretty sketchy neighborhood, a neighborhood without Chick-fil-A, a neighborhood without DeBoer Bakery, a sketchy neighborhood, and make his home with us. And in doing so, to slowly heal our souls so that we could encounter his glorious presence, not with fear and terror and shame, but with joy and wonder. God says to us what he said to his people thousands of years ago, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul, my soul will not abhor you. Which is why our souls should leap for joy upon hearing the good news that the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Join us in a prayer in your hearts with your eyes open. There will be images on the screen and we will pray through the O antiphons. Um, I invite you to join us in that and then we will stand and sing together after. O wisdom, you set the stars in orbit. Please guide our path. and ruler, you alone rule justly as our lawgiver. Empower us to do right. <laughs> A root of Jesse amidst our dead and barren lives bring forth surprising new life. O key of David, unlock, unleash, unbind all who are oppressed and yearn for freedom. Radiant dawn, you awake the world with beauty. Astonish us with your goodness and justice. O King of nations, where war and division destroys, fashion real unity and true peace. Emmanuel, amidst our isolation and independence, come live with us in love until we learn to love.
for the sake of your name and the world you so love. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing together? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel.
Another cold, gray, dark morning, maybe like today, but the sun hadn't risen, and yet the cars filled the street as they jettisoned their children to school and off to work. It's so routine that for a moment you almost missed its peculiarity. The seasonal shift that has caused darkness to reign. Two-thirds of our days up here in the north, half the time we are awake, it is dark. Yes, we're accustomed to it happening every single winter, this darkness that settles in, and yet it still has the power to knock us off kilter at times, doesn't it? The absence of sunlight affects us, both mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. We know it, even if we don't know the scientific reasons why, we need light. And on a deeper level, I think we need the light. You see, in the beginning, the universe was a dark and formless void of nothingness. And Genesis 1 declares that God said, let there be light, and light was formed. Into chaos and disorder, light ordered life. Light 1.0, you might say. And then in ancient Jerusalem, a time when the people of God wandered under siege by other nations, leadership was suspect, Isaiah prophesied of another light that would come, Light 2.0, you might say, when he said the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Centuries later, the priest Zechariah had this angelic encounter in the temple, and he, said it was told, he was told that his barren wife would have a child. He was struck mute for his unbelief and skepticism and only regained his voice once that child was born. And then he said, because of God's mercy, the light of dawn will shine upon us again to guide our feet in the way of peace. Amidst, chaos of the, amidst the chaos of the cosmos, God spoke light into existence and brought order. Amidst the hopelessness of war and the unfaithfulness of people, God's light would be hope. For the faithful. Amidst unbelief and skepticism, God's light would bring understanding and peace. Light has many functions, but chiefly and most obviously, maybe, light reveals. Light allows us to see. It makes vision possible, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually even. Light illuminates the darkness, the brokenness, and injustices of our world. The light of God shines on this chaos monster of evil and pain that we all know all too well. Light reveals reality. But this Christmas, we remember that the light not only reveals, but also restores. God's light is not only shed onto the chaos of this brokenness and pain of this world, but the light of Christ has the power to reconcile and make whole, to restore what was broken, to heal what is sick. Jesus is light in the dark 2.0, 
revealing and restoring this world. And we see evidence, don't we, of this even in nature. Take, for example, a tree. A couple years back, I came outside to find two four-year-old boys whacking away at one of my trees with hammers. I don't know where they got it, but they were doing their best Paul Bunyan impersonation. Bark was everywhere. The shininess of the under part of the tree was exposed. Sap was leaking all over the place. And I thought for sure that this tree would not make it. And yet the light from the sun caused growth originally and continued to cause growth in this tree. It dried the exposed woods and made like wood scabs on the bark. Sun healed and allowed the tree to survive. We also know it in our bodies, don't we? This need for vitamin D to process calcium that makes our bones and teeth healthy and strong. Well, studies have also shown that sun-stimulated vitamin D not only helps to prevent disease and possibly even prolong life, but it also is, they think, uh, helps us to heal quicker from our diseases and ailments. In nature, light not only reveals brokenness, but it also restores and heals. We celebrate at Christmas because God has not only revealed the brokenness of this world, but he has entered in to do something about it. The light of Christ brings new life amidst the pain and suffering of this world. And Fellowship Church, you have testified to how, as John, the gospel writer John would say, the light in the dark shines in the darkness of our lives and the darkness cannot overcome it. I've heard your testimony, like when a woman trapped in an abusive relationship courageously breaks free and allows the healing work of Christ to set her on a new path of restoration and wholeness, that's the light shining into the darkness of our world. Or when a college student, addicted to substances, yearning for the next hit, the next escape, discovers the healing power of Christian community and turns his life over to Christ, that's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. Or when a family member, ostracized for their beliefs, their lifestyle, or their convictions, is spurred by the grace that they have received to courageously return home and remains connected to a family they feel they hardly know, That's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. Or when a church, challenged by the reality of lonely kids in our schools and people of food insecurity in our community, sacrificially gives of their time and their money, that's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. Or when a parent, accustomed to the regular pour of too many drinks, receives their child's confrontation and takes the first courageous step into AA. That's the light shining into the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. This Christmas, we celebrate the light in the dark 2.0. Jesus, our Messiah, Emmanuel, the one who reveals and restores our hearts and someday this whole world. What might it look like for you to receive the light of Christ who reveals and restores you this Christmas. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, would you stand and let's sing together.
Friends, please repeat after me. He came to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. I love that line. Perhaps you've noticed throughout our service, there is a bit of a red thread that's running from start to finish as we're going through this service together. That thread is this theme of 2.0, of Christmas 2.0, of Christmas as God's latest and greatest effort to make right whatever is wrong in the world today. And there's plenty that's wrong, don't you think? I'm wondering, 
what, if anything, is ruining your Christmas or maybe even your life this year. Maybe it's the chaos monster of loneliness. Itself a new pandemic, but also loneliness is literally as old as Adam. And the first thing in the Bible that's called not good is Adam alone. And yet, at Christmas time, we celebrate Emmanuel 2.0, God with us in a new and better way through Jesus the Christ. Maybe what's ruining your life for your Christmas this year is the chaos monster of darkness, evil, anywhere and everywhere in the world today. And to be honest, this world is a dark place sometimes, and some people want it darker, right? And yet, at Christmas time, we celebrate light in the dark 2.0, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Maybe the chaos monster for you is not so much out there, but it's in here, or it's in here. Maybe the chaos monster for you right now is guilt or shame. Guilt says, I've done bad. Shame says, I am bad. And what you need to hear this Christmas is salvation history 2.0. You need to be reminded of Jesus and that he came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. If you take up your Bible and read it from start to finish, I think you'll notice a theme that is merging throughout. There's certain people in certain places that seem to matter always. These people and places become representative characters and representative locations for us. For example, first of all, there's Adam. Adam is the very first person. Unfortunately, Adam and his wife Eve are not remembered for the good that they did, but for the things that they did wrong. God gave them a whole wide world. God gave them literally everything, and all of it was good. And they were given only one rule, don't take the forbidden fruit. And yet they took it anyways. They took that forbidden fruit. It's like, Adam, you had one job, man. Come on. Missed the mark. And like the first domino in a long, long chain of all the rest of the dominoes, Adam fell into sin and all of humanity followed thereafter. Theologians call it original sin. And it leads on to the undisrupted transmission of sin from one generation to the next. So the Bible finally says that there is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? <laughs> Talk about shame and guilt. In the New Testament, Adam is remembered as the one who brought guilt and shame, sin and death into the world, but even more so, and this is Salvation History 2.0, Jesus, the Christ, is presented as a second Adam. He is equal to Adam in his influence, affecting absolutely everything, and yet opposite in style to Adam because Jesus brought in good things, not bad things. Jesus is Adam 2.0, and everything that Adam did wrong, Jesus did right, until the Bible finally tells us, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that in Adam, all die, and yet in Christ, all are made alive. After Adam comes Moses, and Moses is known in the scriptures as the great liberator of God's people. Moses goes to all the sin powers of the world, whether those are my sins or your sins or someone else's sins. 
Moses goes to those held in captive in Egypt, another representative place. He says on God's behalf, let my people go. In the New Testament, Jesus comes onto the scene and in the flesh and basically says that same thing to all the powers of guilt and shame, sin and death. Jesus says, let my people go. He is the second Moses. I'll offer just one more. The promised land, 2.0. Read your Old Testament and you'll see often there God is making great promises to God's people. And often those promises include land. And that land is described as a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It becomes for the people of the Old Testament, it becomes their hope of heaven, their happily ever after place. It becomes their home sweet home. That chunk of land, the promised land, becomes the most highly desired and hotly disputed real estate on planet Earth, even still today. Read the news. In Jesus, the promise of a promised land is not lost. It's just made all the better. The promised land offered in Jesus' name is God's unshakable kingdom. God's kingdom come in our hearts and in our homes and increasingly so in our neighborhoods and across the nations until finally there's not one square inch left out. Promised land 2.0, all part of salvation history 2.0. So friends, if you today, especially maybe this Christmas, are wrestling with those chaos monsters of guilt or shame, or maybe if you are feeling like you are in captivity somewhere, somehow, and you feel like you are undeserving, you don't belong, that you don't belong in God's promised land, God's kingdom come. Remember, at Christmas time, we're celebrating salvation history 2.0, and God is still at work to make right whatever is wrong in the world. Jesus is the second Adam. He is the second Moses, and he is the bringer of a better promised land, and the Christ child is born into this dark and messy world so that the final word is not, I've done bad. The final word is not, I am bad. The final word is Jesus. And he came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Amen and amen. Friends, this is good news. Would you stand and let's sing with joy that Christ has come and will come again.
friends, as we tip towards celebrating Christmas, I have a story for you from the Jesus Storybook Bible. There will be a couple images on the screen, and I invite you to just use your imagination as you hear this story, as you think about all that you long to be made right in this world and how God is seeking after you. Have you ever been to a party that lasted a whole week? How about a sermon that lasted a whole day? Well, that's what happened to God's people after they came home from being slaves. They had forgotten how God wanted them to live or who they were supposed to be. So Ezra and Nehemiah read them the rules God had given Moses. But something odd happened. The more the sermon went on, the sadder they all got. Why? Was the sermon that boring? No, not really. It was strange, you see. As Ezra read the book of rules, it worked like a mirror. It showed them what they were like, and they didn't like what they saw. They saw that they had not been living the way they should. They saw that they were cruel and selfish. We've blown it, they cried. Now God will punish us. They thought they knew what God was going to do, but they didn't. God was actually coming to wipe away their tears. Ezra looked at God's children. Great hot tears were welling up in their eyes and streaming down their cheeks. He stopped his sermon mid-sentence and shut the book. We're having a party, he shouted. And so that's just what they did all week long. All day, they listened to stories about the wonderful things God had done for his people, how he rescued them no matter what, time after time, over and over again, because of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. They remembered how God had always, all through the years, been loving his children, keeping his promise to Abraham, taking care of them, forgiving them, even when they disobeyed, even when they ran away from him, even when they thought they didn't need him. Then God told his children something more. I can't stop loving you. You are my heart's treasure. But I lost you. Now I am coming back for you. I am like the sun that gently shines on you, chasing away darkness and fear and death. You'll be so happy. You'll be like little calves running free in an open field. I'm going to send my messenger, the promised one, the one you have been waiting for, the rescuer. He is coming. So get ready. It had taken centuries for God's people to be ready, but now the time had almost come for the best part of God's plan. God himself was going to come, not to punish his people, but to rescue them. God was getting ready to wipe away every tear from every eye. And the true party was just about to begin. Friends, Christ has come and Christ will come again this day. Let us celebrate, let us praise, let us be enthusiastic about the coming of Christ to reign in our hearts and in our lives and in our world and the coming of his kingdom to come.
quick things before our final blessing. Uh, each year around this time, Fellowship has a practice of offering a gift, our Christmas offering to our mission partners. And this year, our mission crew has discerned two mission partners for us to support, one local, one global. One global. The global partner is an RCA-trained pastor with the National Evangelical Church in Beirut who is coordinating um, relief efforts for people who have been displaced by the violence in the Middle East. And our local partner is the campus ministry at GVSU, uh, where they are facing the largest population of students. Um, their ministry has grown by 20%, and they've also had to cut their staffing this year due to funding um, issues. So uh, if you would like to support, there are red envelopes in the back. You can place your Christmas offering there, or um, you can designate it online as a Christmas offering. Secondly, Christmas services, Christmas Eve services this evening, 4.30, 11 p.m. would love to see you there. One final blessing for us this morning, friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.